This week, we begin in Wiley, where the sinister nature of Friday the 13th comes to fruition. We then travel an hour southwest to Arlington, where a young boy experiences every injustice one can. Welcome to episode 41 of Texas 1031. Perfect. I love love a good genocide. Mm, Yes. Oh, God. That was a bad word. (laughs) Sorry. It's fine. (laughs) No, no one else. This is Cassie and Hannah. This is Texas 1031, and this is a Texas true crime podcast. We cover the lesser known murder cases and crimes that occur in Texas. Um, I am first this episode, but before we start, um, you want to recommend, talk, discuss all this stuff? Yeah, actually. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I Happy watched. Happy Thanksgiving. Yeah, it's Thanksgiving week. If you support week. whites. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm totally kidding. Kind of fucked If you support macaroni and cheese. Macaroni and cheese yeah, for yeah. life. I'm yeah. so ready for all the sides in my body. Yeah, most definitely. <laughs> um, and if you are sitting around with your family this weekend, as I will be, a movie to suggest watching mm. is on Netflix. It was added, I think, a couple of weeks ago by now. It has Chris Pine in it. Um, it's called Outlaw King. It's basically, it picks up the story that was left off after Braveheart, and it's like an untold story about Scotland. It's it's a really good historical movie. Well done. I loved it. It was interesting. So not about America. So definitely about, watch it. Yeah, God, it's about a country that actually has like history and yeah. meaning. Whatever. red hair <laughs> yeah and really cool accents they actually were pretty spot on with the accents it was nice because chris pine does a scottish chris accent Pine does a pretty good scottish accent and he's not over the top with it you know so which it is hard feels to more legit. not do because mm-hmm. you feel obligated to push it yeah you know <laughs> as we do just walking around with our scottish accents anyway sorry and then one more before we get um more into other recommendations i'm just gonna say one last time guys christmas is now officially a month away go to keepyourcoal.com support our friend natalie she's not paying us to do this we just really love yeah. her work and i am so fucking excited to get the shit i ordered for christmas in the mail cassie doesn't even like christmas i don't and this is taking so much pressure off of me because like i went and looked at her site i think this is the first thing i told hannah i was like i'm buying mm-hmm. all my pres- christmas presents here i can't so, believe it's almost christmas oh my god this is like uh, a weird flashback go ahead christmas. sorry it's so cold go support um, natalie support natalie keep your com. that's k-e-e-p Y-O-U-R-C-O-A-L.com. Wow, and then wow. that promo code to get 15% off. Um, and she's doing gift wrap. All that fun stuff is Death, Death by, by Stone, Stone 15. 15. So do that. Hannah, what are your recommendations? I don't have any recommendations because my case is pretty long. So Sweet. Let's get into it. Get to it. <laughs> Roll in. I keep putting on my jacket yeah, and taking I noticed it back that too. off. Uh, all right, so I'm finally getting around to this case. I've researched and written this fucker out numerous times. 
I actually originally wanted to do it for our Valentine's Day episode. Mm. This is how long ago this was. Yeah. But I skipped it for whatever reason. So uh, happy to be getting on with it. Hopefully that actually isn't too much of a spoiler for anyone who remembers what we did for our Valentine's Day episode. I don't know why that just that felt right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I want to give a source shout out to Texas Monthly, who once again always has the best info. We yeah. both can attest to it. Um, but anyways, this is the story of the murder of Betty Gore. I know, right? Yes. Uh, in Wiley, Texas. Uh, it's a little long, mainly because there's just a lot of great info. And uh, this one, like I told Cassie before we started, is on the humorous side to a certain extent, if you have a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. But it's also very violent. Um, but this should be a fun one. Yeah. It's a, a nice change of pace from last week. Yeah. Last week sucked. Oh, by the way. Oh, yeah. It was very combative. <laughs> Apparently, it's not combative. It's no. combative. But I so, didn't want to interrupt her because she was on a roll. Please interrupt me next okay, time. because so I say combative probably five times a week just in my normal life. Yeah. So no one has ever corrected me. So I was like, you. are you sure? Did you look it up? Are you sure you're right? And then I looked it up and the internet was like, yeah, it's combative. But Classy, for some reason, people say combative. So That's weird. I'm not the only one, but it's a weird. Maybe that was like a 1970 something version that you just like inherited from. Competitive, dude. Yeah. I don't know. Whatever. That wasn't. What's fine. All right. We just wanted to address when you guys were screaming. So picture it, Friday the 13th of June, 1980. The 80s, God, they were the worst. They need help. <laughs> uh, like I said, this takes place in Wiley. Um, it's not a big town. I don't really know what it's kind of like now. But back then, it had about 3,000 people population-wise. Okay. So everyone's kind of close. It's like um, we'll kind of... Huh? Like Giddings. Yeah, Giddings still is just, you look at it, there's like a Taco Bell and like a funeral home, you know, and it's just like that spot in between here in Austin. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um. Anyway, it's a, essentially a suburb of Dallas, just to kind of paint a picture. So Betty Pomeroy was originally from Kansas. She was pretty, kind, popular, and almost could be given a goody two-shoes title at times. Um, it came as a big shock to her family when she would fall in love with her college math professor. When you when you did the ca thing, I was like, oh, God, cousin. Oh, <laughs> sorry. No, no, no. It's fine. Uh, Alan Gore, <laughs> which like, I mean, that last name, you can't get any better. Uh-uh. Um, they couldn't really see what she saw on him. Alan was a small, plain man with horn rimmed glasses, puffy cheeks, and even at a young age, signs of a receding hairline. He was very shy, often made him come across as uh, stern or aloof or even snobbish, which are all kind of classic signs that we like to direct at uh, a Scott Peterson type. Yeah. So just putting that out there. Did he have money? No. Um, <laughs> this was the 70s, man. Like people were just getting hitched for no reason. True. Because that was like well, what we you had were. Sex, so you have to get right, 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 right. Betty and Alan were married in January of 1970, and they eventually settled in the uh, suburbs of Dallas. When their first child was born, uh, Alan was working for Rockwell International, an electronics conglomerate and major defense contractor. doesn't really matter. 1976, Betty took a job teaching at an elementary school in Wiley, but she didn't really enjoy uh, her work for very long. She couldn't control her unruly students, and at the same time, she couldn't bear to be left alone at home when Alan had to travel. And this will kind of come into play later. She uh, 
I go into it later, but she just seems kind of sad. Okay. Um, in spite of her unhappiness, though, Betty had decided as a new school year began in the fall of 1978 that, uh, you know, they should just go ahead and have their next child because, like, why not? Happy um, babies. <laughs> God, no, I'm gonna make a shirt. Um, but this time she wanted the pregnancy planned down to the exact week so that uh, the baby would be born in midsummer, so she wouldn't have to take any time off from teaching. So, oh, like, okay, I mean, yeah, I kind of get it. Yeah, like, who wants to? <laughs> Never mind. I'm gonna say <laughs> who doesn't want to have a baby in the summertime in the Texas heat, but that's fine. Ugh, can you imagine? No. Um, this was especially difficult since the Gore's sex life had dwindled to almost nothing. And when they did have sex, it was completely mechanical. Uh, now Alan was required to basically just have clinical sex with Betty every night during her, uh, fertility ovulation cycle, uh, in the name, you know, of family planning, you know, just do it. Uh, sounds so depressing. He felt uh, a little resentful. He had the distinct feeling that he was being used. Betty turned to her church for comfort and friendship in the midst of her pregnancy struggles and unstable marriage. It was a church service that uh, first brought Candace, who went by Candy, uh, Candace Montgomery, and Betty Gore together and where their friendship began. Candy Montgomery would always be able to remember the precise moment when she <laughs> decided to go to bed with Betty's husband, Alan. Whoa, I thought they were going to no, clam smash. That would have... <laughs> Been a way hard left turn. Yeah, this did. is even funnier though because they're just like they're the lamest of the lame, like the loserest people in the world that decide to have an affair. Like this is like nerd alert central. Have you seen the Duchess, the Keira Knightley movie? Uh, I remember it coming out, but I don't remember what it was about. This is what, I love it. It's one of my favorite movies. Okay, so I just remember this, like her giant hair. That's all I. This literally happens. She okay. becomes best friend with this lady, and she's having like boring i only need to procreate sex mm-hmm. with her husband and then her husband bangs the fucking shit out of her friends like what well close enough um so blah 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 she figures out when she wants to fuck betty's husband um it happened on the church volleyball court on a late summer day in 1978 in the daytime well that's when she first, like, figured out that that's what she wanted. Oh, I thought they no. just fucked yeah, in yeah, the yeah. volleyball sand. sand and all. It was so You know where I really like now? to have sex? The beach. Right. But we're not at the beach, so. <laughs> Candy and Alan both tried to make a play on the same ball and collided. Like, the most cheesy moment ever, right? Like, I just picture, like, Saved by the Bell, like, just, like, the worst. Mm-hmm. It was a harmless bump, really, and went uh, relatively unnoticed by everyone else on the court. But for Candy, it brought a revelation. I want to suck your dick. Alan Gore smelled sexy. <laughs> Gross. I know, Sweaty right? on the volleyball court. Sick. <laughs> For several weeks, she had been talking abstractly to her friends about having an affair. Candy wanted something to shake up her, quote, very boring life with her husband, Pat. She was explicit about the kind of affair she was interested in. Transcendent sex, as she put it. I want fireworks. I hate her so I much. Know. <laughs> uh, it's just so 80s. Like, I yeah. just can't. I just, like, picture the outfits and the hair oh, and the hairspray. How I much cocaine can't. was she abusing? Oh, I hope it needed to be a lot. Uh, when she bumped into Alan, she wondered to herself, quote, could a man like that make the earth move? <laughs> this is so bad, right? At first glance, he didn't look like it. Alan had a receding hairline and the beginnings of a paunchy midsection, and he dressed blandly, to say the least. But in other ways, he was the kind man she might be able to have a good time with. She had known Alan for only nine months, but it seemed much longer. God. 
Amateur hour. Uh, He was a lot like her, active in the church, lover of kids, outgoing, personable half of a mismatched couple. Alan sang in the choir. He had a great sense of humor, helped organize the sports teams. He did all the things that Betty never seemed to want to get involved in. Same girl. (laughs) After choir practice, the two of them would occasionally chat a little longer than necessary or loiter in the parking lot. Well, the others were so getting vanilla. into their cars. I know. The flirting was subtle. Sometimes it was so much like Alan's natural friendliness with everyone that Candy doubted it was a real flirtation. As the weeks went by, uh, she started fantasizing about sex with the man who smelled so nice. <laughs> this is astonishing to me. Candy was almost 29 years old. Basically, meaning she's a smidge younger than I am, which is sad. Because the, I'm picturing a 40-year-old bitch yeah, right now. Yeah, I'm picturing some lady who... Right. Ugh. Okay. Uh, Candy was almost 29 years old and sexually frustrated. That <laughs> shouldn't happen. <laughs> she was totally honest with herself about that. How many more years did she have to find out what she was missing? Not many. Nope, so your entire she, life. She decided to do something about it. I mean, at this point, she's married and she has a couple kids, okay? So it's Ugh, she's very 80s. Very Ugh. 80s. Sorry. Uh, she got Sorry, her... Sorry, everyone who I has know, kids. God. It's fine. They're not listening. She got her chance one night after choir practice. Alan was already getting into his car when Candy spotted him. She strode up to the passenger strode. I don't know what that means. Uh, walked up to the passenger side and opened the door. Quote, Alan, she said, leaning into the car. I want to talk to you sometime about something that has been bothering me. Oh, he said. How about right now? Candy slid into the seat beside him. I'm sorry. This isn't that funny, but for some reason, it is me. It's so bad. She didn't even look at him. Quote, I've been thinking about you a lot, and it's really bothering me, and I don't know whether I want to do anything about it or not. Alan, a little confused, said nothing. Quote, I'm very attracted to you, and I'm tired of thinking about it, so I wanted to tell you. And with that, she just jumped out of the car, slammed the door, and hurried across the parking lot. After a week or so, the incident, uh, after a week, a week or so after the incident at choir practice, we're drinking the drinks that, that are potent as shit, okay? Mm-hmm. Alan saw Candy again. It was after another church volleyball game, and Candy uh, stayed to clean up with Alan in the gymnasium afterward, and they walked out to the parking lot together. When they reached her car, Alan said, Now, what was... <laughs> uh, now, what was it that you had in mind? Get in, Candy said. <laughs> Would you be interested in having an affair? She asked. (laughs) I know. Like, I told you, like, the nerdiest people. Like, how unsexy can you get? Could I interest you? (laughs) Come on. Would you like a sample, sir? I work at Costco. You want to try my vagina real quick? Oh, my God. Despite all his mental preparation, Alan wasn't prepared for something that direct. I don't know what to say, he said. It's just something I've been thinking about, and I wanted to say it, so I don't have to think about it anymore. I don't think I could, Candy. I don't think it would be a wise thing to do, because I love Betty. Once we were living in New Mexico, and she had an affair that hurt me a lot, and I wouldn't want to do that to her. Yeah, Betty's hoeing it up. Whoa. Betty's not all there. Okay. Uh, Candy was surprised to realize how much Alan had thought about his answer. That's fine, Alan. I love Pat, too. I wouldn't want to hurt him either. Betty just got pregnant again, too, and it would be unfair to her, especially since I don't feel the same way about you that I do her, so probably couldn't do something like that. Like, just just so cash. Like, right, thanks Alan. for the offer. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll pass. <laughs> okay, Alan, I was just putting the option out there because of how I felt. It's up to you to decide. I don't want to hurt your marriage. All I want to do... 
All I wanted to do was go to bed. I won't mention it again. Wow. Alan leaned across the seat and softly kissed Candy's lips. Then he quickly got out of the car. This is like a bad Lifetime movie. It is. And it actually was turned into a movie. So this is honestly yes. perfect. I kind of want to go watch it now. Ugh. Betty and Candy, they sound very familiar. So I might have <clears throat> seen this Lifetime movie. Uh, one solution to he and Betty's marital issues that Alan considered briefly was a program called Marriage Encounter. So some friends of his. God, I think my parents taught that I, course at from church. church. Yeah. <laughs> Holy shit. Had gone to a Dallas motel one weekend for a special marriage encounter session in which several couples talked about their marriages and tried to strengthen their commitment. In a dirty hotel. Okay, I'm sorry. It's not like, I mean, I guess it's, a motel always sounds bad, but I guess it was kind of a retreat in okay. a sense from other articles that I read. Okay. Um, Alan wouldn't expect Betty's response to be so aggressive when he brought it up, but she just rejected the whole idea and claimed she was too busy. I mean, she's knocked up and already has a kid. Like, she's just, no, I'm good. This hurt Alan's feelings a great deal, and he turned to Candy for comfort. Uh-oh. Uh, I mean, so far, I mean, well, I guess he did kiss her, but he was trying. He was trying to be yeah. a good dude, but then immediately. Nah, like, he sucks. Yeah, Every immediately. Sucks. <laughs> the next month uh, consisted, oh, God, this is good, and I cut some of it out because I like, this is going to take too long, consisted of strategy sessions for what must have been the most meticulously planned love affair in the history of romance. They talked about, uh, or they talked a great deal about emotional involvement. They agreed that there would be none of that. It was too dangerous. As long as they limited the affair to sex, they were safe. The couple made a list of rules and conditions for the affair, like numbered and bulleted, like all this shit uh, for the affair to be able to commence. Finally, having checked off every possible precaution, they set the date for the affair to begin on December 12th, 1978. What the fuck? Like how, like you can't get, like there's no mystery. There's no anticipation. There's just like, here's the contract. Like this is just so. Their affair is going to be more vanilla missionary. Right. It's so planned. It's how is this even going to be good? But that just shows how like lame they kind of were which yeah. is sad it's like dwight and angela from the office making their childbearing contract oh just like did you did you bring two forms of id <laughs> <laughs> uh here we go the sex was gentle and conventional but satisfying it was also brief but nonetheless i bet she didn't have an orgasm i bet she never once had a fucking orgasm 1978 but nonetheless, the two enjoyed spending time together. It was actually kind of sweet when I read about it because they would make lunch for each other and actually have like a little like lunch date and then fuck. But <laughs> the, the lunch date would be 30. They would have a 40 <laughs> right. minute window and the lunch and date would be 30. And that's what was really sad was that they pretty much just bitched about their spouses to each other and they vented about their marital problems to each other. And then they would sleep together and it was like, all right, that's cool. But thanks for talking to me. It was almost like a weird sexual therapy session. Right. Yeah. So uh, the pair would eventually start meeting up at the Como Motel, which I drove by countless of times in my 22 <laughs> years that I lived in Dallas. I'm probably certain that you might have driven by it and you don't even realize. Maybe. Um, which is just pretty funny to me. It's a shithole, to say the least. It's been there forever. And here for the last days of 1978 and the first three months of 1979, Alan and Candy would have their affair. The two eventually realized that this affair was becoming more than just a sexual fantasy and reprieve from their boring spouses. They were falling in love with each other. Mm -hmm. But that would be breaking one of the rules now, wouldn't it? Oh. Fast forward to July when Betty gave birth to baby Bethany. Betty seemed to perk up for a while. As babies often do, Bethany brought, their, uh, brought her parents closer together, especially during the week just after she was born, before they told anyone in the church about it. Mm. 
Alan began to feel guilty about his continued affair with Candy, especially after uh, the special week he and Betty had shared after the birth of their second daughter. And a month or so went by with Alan dodging Candy's attempts at continuing their usual rendezvous. Alan finally caves and meets up with Candy for a picnic. Quote, I love you so much, Alan. I don't know if I can make it if we break up. Alan didn't know what else to say except the usual things about wanting to patch up his marriage. Quote, Betty wants to go to marriage reencounter uh, or marriage <laughs> reencounter marriage encounter now. I asked her once before, but she always said she didn't think we needed it. Too busy. I think maybe it will do us both some good. Quote, I think marriage encounter is going to be the end of us. Be the end for us, Candy said. Betty and Alan would go to marriage encounter and return home um, that weekend with unexpected success. The couple had reconnected and were deeply in love once again. Hmm. Ironically, on their way back into town, this is just baffling, they had to stop at Candy's home to pick up baby Bethany. Candy literally was left to babysit their new baby while uh, they went and repaired their marriage. No, why did he let that happen? Because it was, they're just so What if she was fucking crazy and drowned the baby? Uh, Man, no, she wasn't like that. Okay. In typical, I don't know, maybe she she had her own kids, so it wasn't like, yeah. Okay, yeah. In typical guy fashion, even after the uh, revelation during the marriage weekend, Alan was still torn between Betty and Candy. After making the strongest argument he could for breaking up, Alan still couldn't bring himself to say the words. Uh, They left the issue hanging, but agreed to meet again the next day. When they did, Candy uh, came directly to the point. Quote, Alan, you seem to be leaving it up to me, so I've decided I won't call. I won't try to see you. I won't bother you anymore. They both cried a little because they knew it was over. Alan was secretly relieved that she had made the decision, not him. That way he didn't have to hear or hear bear the guilt. He hadn't planned for it to happen that way. That's just how it worked out. Now, this is when it gets good. Mm. At 410 Dogwood Street, the home of Alan and Betty, their two children and their two Cocker Spaniels, no one came or went on the afternoon of Jan- uh, January, June 13th, 1980. The phone rang intermittently but wasn't answered. Around noon, a delivery man for a parcel service rang the doorbell, but no one uh, responded. Around 4, Alan called from DFW Airport, where he was about to board a plane. After 10 or 11 rings, he hung up. Are you thinking that it's Alan? I'm thinking that it's Candy, (laughs) now that Alan made a phone call. I thought it was Alan at first. (laughs) Alan had uh, left for St. Paul that late afternoon. It was an awkward time, awkward trip. He wasn't really enjoying this trip for a very familiar reason. Betty couldn't stand to be left alone, even for one night. So flashback to her having weird abandonment problems. Uh, This trip would, however, be a bit easier on her um, because they were actually planning a vacation together. So after their whole marriage re-encounter thing, they decided they're going to go to Europe without the kids for the first time in four years. And she was very excited about planning it and basically describing that it was their second honeymoon. Oh. Yeah. Damn it. (laughs) I don't know how I feel about this. Uh, Then that morning, she had a breakdown once again, which I feel like we've all been there. You know, you get too much anxiety about something yeah cool and then it just yeah the guy that you're with is leaving and you feel weird um alan promised to call her from the airport the sound of his voice would reassure her that everything was going to be okay um this is where i kind of referenced she just sounded very troubled um perhaps maybe it was the post-pregnancy hormones kind of thing roller coaster marriage whatever depression exactly Um, but she just seemed off. Um, on the way to his gate, he stopped at a payphone and dialed home. The phone rang seven or eight times, so he hung up and dialed again. When he got no answer, he assumed that Betty was taking her afternoon walk with Bethany. Just then, he saw one of his colleagues and joined them in the boarding area. 
The flight was uneventful and on time. Uh, they agreed to meet for dinner around nine once settled into, into their hotel rooms. I add all that detail just so you're a little reassured of his uh, culpability. Here. Okay. Um, Alan sat. Oh, did I skip anything? No. Alan sat on, uh, in his room going back over the day, wondering if he had forgotten something Betty had said that morning or plans she had made, which could corroborate her not being home. He called his house again. Let the phone ring 15 times, which I don't know how he remembers every time, but then he got an operator to even dial the number to see if, you know, there was a glitch or whatever. Mm -hmm. Still no answer. Alan called Richard Parker, his next door neighbor and the real estate agent who sold them their house. When Richard answered, Alan could hear small children in the background. Richard, this is Alan Gore. Sorry to bother you, but I'm out of town and I've been trying to get Betty on the phone. I think the phone must be out of order. Would you mind knocking on the door over there just to see if she's home? Yeah, okay, partner, said Richard, a little annoyed at the imposition. I guess I can run over. Richard banged hard on the door at the Gore home and waited for an answer. He rang the doorbell. He waited a few more seconds and then sprinted back across the grass. No answer, Alan. She must be out. Okay, Alan said. Thanks for checking. I'll call later. Now, Alan was starting to worry. On an impulse, he dialed the Montgomery's number. Candy answered after one ring. Mm -hmm. Quote, Candy, this is Alan. Have you seen Betty? Oh, Alan, where are you? <laughs> I'm in Minnesota on a business trip. I've been trying to get Betty, but no one answers, and I thought you might have talked to her today. I saw her this morning when I went to pick up Alyssa's swimsuit. Alyssa is their oldest child. Did Betty seem all right? She was fine, said Candy. She did act like she was in a hurry for me to leave, though. Do you know where she might be? Maybe she went to a friend's. No, she wouldn't go out this late. It scares her. Well, I'm sure there's nothing wrong. Alan, is there anything I can do? I'd be happy to go over to the house and check on them for you. No, that's all right. I'll call the neighbors. A few minutes later, Alan went downstairs to a motel restaurant. He, uh, to the motel restaurant. He returned to his room around 10 o'clock, well past uh, Betty's bedtime. Still no answer at home. Alan called Richard again and asked him to see if Betty's car was in the garage. Bear with me. I know it's a lot of shit. Mm-mm. Richard went as far as the chain link fence between the two houses and peered into the garage. Then he went back to the phone and said, Yeah, Alan, there's only one car there, and the garage is open, and the lights are on. One car is gone, the garage door is open, and the lights are on, Alan said. Alan hung up and felt sick. Why didn't Betty call? Why didn't anyone know anything? Why couldn't he make the one phone call that would make everything all right? For the third time, he dials Richard Parker's house. Poor fucking Richard. But this time, he didn't waste words. Richard, I'm really worried about her. Please go over uh, and check all the doors and the garage again. If she had to leave in a hurry, maybe she left a note somewhere. He could see um, a light under the door, but it was locked. Something about the house, the burning lights, the open garage, the silence disturbed him. Mm. Alan also, hey, called Jerry McMahon, uh, yet another neighbor. Jerry, something's wrong over at my house. I've been trying to get to Betty. Nobody answers. Lights are on. Doors are locked. Yada, yada. Would you get a flashlight and go over there and see what you can find out? He didn't say yada yada. That was me. <laughs> in Alan's garage, he knocked loudly on the utility room, but got no answer. Walked into the backyard, tried to force open the sliding glass door, but it wouldn't budge. He continued around to the front of the house, peering in windows as he went, rang the doorbell. Still no signs of life. Back at his own house, he told Alan, the lights are on in there, but I can't see anything wrong. Jerry, there is something definitely wrong. She's probably just out with friends. No, she's not out with friends. I've tried that. Get in that house and see what's wrong. Take off the windows, force the doors, whatever it takes. Do I sound like too intense right now? Sorry. Mm-mm. Okay. As soon as Jerry told his wife what was happening, she grew frightened and insisted that he not go over there alone. So she called 
Lester Gaylor, a barber who lived down the street. Call the police. Right. <laughs> so at this point, we got Lester, Richard, and Jerry, all right? Fucking three stooges. Exactly. <laughs> um, when uh, two minutes later, the two friends meet in the alley behind the Gore house. When Richard walked out into the yard carrying a big silver ring full of house keys, he was startled to see Jerry and Lester. What the hell's going on, Jerry said. I don't know, said Richard. Gore just called, said we got to get into the house. I got these realtor keys. Let's just try to get them on the doors. Long story short, none of the keys worked. They eventually find a door that was unlocked. How did they not find? Okay. I know. That's right. Um, the two men joined Richard on the porch, but for a moment, no one made a move to go in. Richard stuck his head in the crack of the open door and said, Betty, Betty. Finally, Lester pushed open the door and the three men entered the foyer illuminated by the lights burning in the den. Um, and then all the hall doors were closed. Lester stepped, uh, stopped at the first one, opened it, and flipped on the light inside. Richard looked over at Lester's shoulder, a child's bedroom. Nothing unusual. They continued down the hall to the next room. Meanwhile, Jerry peered into the bathroom, and on the tile, he saw a dark, caked substance. Oh no, he said, something bad is wrong. Which doesn't make sense. <laughs> At the second bedroom, Lester opened the door and flipped on the light. As soon as he did, Richard heard the hacking wail of an abandoned child. Oh. Uh, she had obviously been there for a long time. Uh, Richard quickly gathered up the baby, cradling her uh, in his arms. And he hurried back to his house to finally call the police. God damn. As Richard left, Jerry and Lester went on to the master bedroom where they found nothing. Um, that left the other half of that just left the other half of the house to kind of investigate. They entered the living room, which at this point, like crime scene, but OK. Mm-hmm. Enter the living area. Jerry went into the dining room while Lester looked in the kitchen. They walked slowly, turning on lights. Both of them were increasingly aware of a pungent odor that seemed to follow them through the house. Finally, Lester made his way through the kitchen to the utility room door. Oh, my God. Don't go any further. Lester had not seen the body. He hadn't seen anything but blood, thick, congealed, reddish-brown oceans of blood glistening on the tile of the utility room floor, and he didn't want to look any further than that. Yeah. Around lunchtime the next day, the calls made to Candy of, you know, air quotes, did you hear, began to dwindle. A friend reported that Alan was home and uh, from St. Paul and that when he was told that Betty, um, or when he finally got home, he was told that Betty had been killed with an axe. He almost collapsed. Candy sat by the kitchen table, phone cradled between her ear and shoulder, a pair of garden shears in her hands. As she spoke, she worked the garden shears back and forth, pressing with all her might as the blades cut through a pair of rubber sandals. She continued to work for several minutes long enough to destroy all semblance of pattern on the soles, rending the shoes in a messy heap of rubber. After hanging up the phone, she gathered the scraps and carried them to an outside garbage can. Just trying to emphasize that Candy's a psycho. Mm-hmm. Each man who saw the lifeless body of Betty Gore that night of June 13th reflexively averted their eyes. Even those who already knew what lay beyond the utility room door were never bold enough to look more than a moment before closing the door. That's good. Her left arm was the first thing they noticed after opening the door. It lay in a pool of blood and fluid so thick that the arm appeared to be floating above the linoleum. Wow. To get a good look at her face, the men had to walk around the ocean of red and black to get closer. What they saw was even more unsettling. Her lips were parted, showing her front teeth, the mouth fashioned into a half grin. Her hair 
uh, radiated in all directions, a tangled, soaked mass of glistening black. And um, obviously you guys know I copied and pasted a lot of this shit, right? I didn't write that. And Betty's left eye was uh, wide open, staring down at the gaping black craters in her arm. Like, yikes. As to her right eye, she appeared to not have one. (laughs) The entire right half of her face seemed to be gone. Oh, my. A few feet from Betty's head and half concealed under the freezer was a heavy, wooden-handled, three-foot-long axe. Oh, so the murder weapon was left? Yep. That's smart. The police who investigated Betty Gore's death at first could not believe that anyone as small as Candy Montgomery had the physical strength to wield that axe so brutally. Oh, so they just jumped right to it. Even as their suspicions about her grew, they found it hard to believe that this pretty, vivacious, normal suburban housewife could make such a vicious attack. She was a loving mother, devoted wife, churchgoer, all the things. And she wasn't putting on a cynical act. She was really acting normal and likable, and she appeared as a good person. But uh, except for one dark corner of her soul that uh, she didn't even know about. Mm. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to make fun of this. I'm really not. No, it's very, it's tragic what happened to Betty, but Just, Candy's fucking laughable. You, everyone might come to a different opinion at the end of this. What? Okay. Yeah. Candy, by her own report, uh, was the last person to see Betty alive. Um, she became the main suspect in a matter of weeks. The police questioned her several times, but her version of the day's events and her relations with the Gores was always airtight, or so it seemed, until Alan Gore admitted that he had ended an affair with Candy just seven months earlier, which is a decent amount of time that to is. hold a grudge, but still. Yeah. Um, that gave the police motive for killing. They arrested Candy Montgomery and charged her with murder. For a while, Candy actually just denied the charges altogether, which I don't really know how that helps anything, but okay. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> she um, was released on bail. Uh, she just stopped reading newspapers, watching all the TV newscasts. It was too much for her. Candy hired a lawyer she knew from church, which is Don Crowder, to represent her. Um, he, had a, he was a partner in a small firm with uh, the attorney general at the time. He usually handled personal injury work, so he had never been close to a murder case before, and suddenly he had the hottest one in Texas on his hands. As he began to delve into the case, he realized he was going to need help prying the memories of that horrible June day out of candy. He enlisted the aid of a Houston psychiatrist, Dr. Fred Faison, Faison, Forensic Files. (laughs) He was a psychiatrist, but he was also a first-rate clinical hypnotist and there it is this is uh the account of their first session together which went surprisingly well quote when i snap my fingers he said you will you will begin re-experiencing and relating that time to me as you go through it one two three he snapped his fingers loudly begin what's happening candy she said nothing she looked worried what's happening candy you can tell me what thoughts are, you, are going through your mind? I'm going to count to three. When I reach the count of three, your thoughts and feelings will get stronger and stronger and stronger. You'll have to express and verbalize them. One, two, stronger and stronger. What's that you're, you're feeling, Candy? Hate. Okay, you hate her. Express your feelings stronger and stronger. I hate her. You hate her. You hate her. Say it loud. I hate her. Louder. I hate her. She's messed up my whole life. Look at this. I hate her. I hate her. I won't let her hit me again. I don't want him. She can't do this to me. Dr. Faison made her go deeper into the past, asking her back to the, quote, first time you ever got mad. Do you, do you recall ever being that mad before? Do you recall it? <clears throat> no response. 
when you were little. Let's go back in time. Let's go back in the time machine and go way, way back in time, back when you were little. One, back, back in time. Two, three. The time machine stops. How old are you, Candy? Four. Tell me about it. What made you so mad? I lost it. What did you lose? Race. You lost the race to Johnny. Do you like Johnny? He beat me. What did he say when he beat you? No answer. How did you feel? Mad. Furious. What are you going to do? I'll break it. Break what? The jar. How did you break it? I threw it against the pump. Are you scared? Candy nodded. My mother took me to the hospital. What did your mother say? Shh. Did what? Shh. What did she say? Shh. As soon as she stopped, Dr. Faison thought it would be wise to bring her out of the trance, obviously. It would take more interviews to sort out the details of Candy's childhood trauma, as well as of the terrible and fatal struggle between Candy and her friend Betty. But by the end of that first session, Dr. Faison had done what Don Crowder had asked him to do. He had found, in the memory of her mother's perhaps ill-advised discipline at a painful moment, the trigger of Candy Montgomery's rage. So, I know that was a lot, but basically, they went back in time and uh, we'll see how that plays into their altercation. Okay. By October 1980, Crowder was ready for the trial. When it started, he stunned everyone with the declaration that his client would plead self-defense. Uh-huh. Okay. And I will now read what Candy testified to court that day uh, and the claims that she makes that uh, occurred in the Gore home on that Friday the 13th. Candy wasn't expected at the Gore residence until noon, so when Betty heard knocking, she answered the door with obvious annoyance. Betty, I have a special favor to ask you. The girls, meaning Candy's kids, wanted Alyssa to go see a movie with us tonight. Told them it, if it was okay with you, it was okay with me. I'll be happy to take Alyssa to her swimming lessons to save you the extra trip. That's fine, Betty said. Come on in. Candy, if you're going to take Alyssa to her swimming lesson, remember that she doesn't like to put her face underwater. So when she does put her face underwater, be sure to give her peppermints afterward. That's the reward we use. Okay. Yeah. Betty was loosening up. Small talk. Blah, 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 blah. They chatted for a while. And then Candy glanced at her watch. Well, it's getting late. I have some errands to run. You want me to get Alyssa's suit? Betty didn't stir from her chair. Her face was blank. Her eyes were unfocused. Candy, she said calmly, are you having an affair with Alan? Candy was stunned. No, of course not, she answered a little too quickly. Betty squinted. But you did, didn't you? Yes, Candy said. But it was a long time ago. Candy was still, and her eyes avoided Betty's. Wait a minute, Betty said. She rose abruptly from her chair and walked through the open door of the utility room and out of sight. After a few seconds, Betty reappeared in the doorway, her face tense. She was clutching the curved wooden handle of a three-foot axe, the kind used for chopping heavy firewood. Her stance, oddly enough, wasn't very threatening. She held the axe clumsily away from her body, the blade pointed at the floor, Candy was more worried about what Betty would say more than what she would do. Candy stood up. Um, Betty? Well, don't see him again, Betty said. It's an order. Under the circumstances, Candy said, I think I'll just bring Alyssa home and drop her off right after Bible school. No, Betty said harshly. I don't want to see you anymore. Just keep Alyssa. Take her to the movie because I don't want to look at you ever again. Bring her home tomorrow. Betty laid the axe against the wall just inside the living room and walked past Candy into the middle of the living room. I'll get the towel from the bathroom, she said over her shoulder. You go get Alyssa's suit off the washer in the utility room. As Candy took the swimsuit off the washer, Betty reappeared behind her. Don't forget Alyssa's peppermints. <laughs> the tone was softer, a little more reassuring. The two women met at the utility room door, and Betty handed the towel to Candy. That's okay, Candy said. I have some peppermints at home I can give her. 
Candy stuffed the swimsuit and towel under her handbag. Betty gave her the handful of mints anyway, and she dropped those in it as well. When Candy looked up at last, Betty was staring at her. Expression was no longer one of rage. Her face was full of pain. Candy thought of how Betty would cry after she left, and she felt a stab of conscience. Both women hesitated as though something important would be settled by the tone of the parting. Reflexively and clumsily, Candy placed her hand on Betty's arm. When she spoke, her voice dripped with pity. Oh, Betty, I'm so sorry. All at once, Betty's rage erupted. She flung the hand from uh, her, uh, she front flung Candy's hand from her arm, <clears throat> shoved Candy backwards into the utility room. Betty grabbed the axe resting by the doorway and rushed in after her, holding it like a weapon diagonally across her chest. Don't do this. Please stop. I've got to kill you, Betty spoke slowly. <laughs> As they grappled for control, Betty wrenched the axe violently, jerked it upward. The flat side of the blade slapped against the side of Candy's head. So, like, barely, basically fucking missed her head. Okay. Betty, what are you doing? Please stop. I guess she cut her hand at some point. She's bleeding. Candy is bleeding at this point. Even though Candy had no place to hide, Betty was between Candy and both of the exits. The axe missed her entirely and landed harmlessly on the linoleum, uh, but it gashed her toe open. Yeah. So just as it did, Candy grabbed the blade, wrapping her fingers around the uh, metal, and uh, her pleading turned into anger. As soon as Candy grabbed the blade, Betty started shoving and jerking the handle, but Candy held on tightly, and the struggle uh, degenerated into a wrestling match. Um, Finally, she bit Candy on the knuckle. And so with her head bent, if you can kind of imagine yourself doing that, Betty was off balance, and Candy shoved the axe against axe against Betty's body with all her might. Um, Betty reeled backwards, fell against the floor, hit the freezer, uh, slipping on the linoleum. As Betty struggled to regain her balance, her body uh, facing away, Candy brought up the axe with both hands and brought the blade down on the back of Betty's head. Candy dropped the axe, jumped away from Betty, and felt the time shift into slow motion. Uh, Betty began to slump forward, blood pouring everywhere. She was trying to stand up. Um, Obviously, she hadn't killed her yet, and Candy was trying to just, like, get to the door, get out of the way. Um, so, finally, she tried to get to the knob on the door, started to pull, and then Banny, Banny, Betty stands up and slams her body against the door. Like, Betty is not going down, okay? Betty picks up the axe yet again. I promise this is ending soon, okay? Um, and tears started coming out of Candy's eyes. She can hear the dogs barking, just like crazy insanity moment. Let me go, Betty. Please just let me go. Please let me go. I don't want him. I don't want him. Betty's eyes flared. This is important. But her reply was eerily restrained. Placing one finger to her lips and gripping the axe with her other hand, she breathed from somewhere deep in her throat. Shh. What the fuck? Um, she decided this was it. She was going to just destroy Betty. There were 41 chop wounds. In all, 40 of them occurred while Betty Gore's heart was still beating. This was a major, major struggle the whole time. There was one to the head to Betty, one to the toe for Candy. Um, and then that moment where Betty says shush to mm-hmm. Candy, it just clicked in her head. While describing the struggle uh, in uh, the courtroom, her cheeks uh, had trembled and she had sobbed silently, but she finally recovered her composure. Don Crowder feared that her testimony seemed too rehearsed. Quote, at in I guess it's cross-examination even with your own defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you went over there, he said, did you mean to kill her with that axe? No. Crowder picked up the axe and placed it on his right hip. But you did kill her with the axe, didn't you? He said as he walked back towards the witness box. Yes. 
this axe right here. Don't make me look at it. He grabbed the axe with both hands, brought it into full view, and thrust it forward in Candy's face. You killed her with this axe right here, didn't you? Yes, she said, so he would take it away. Candy's testimony ended on a Friday. Prosecutors had their turn at her as well. And the following Wednesday, the jury heard the final arguments and reached its verdict the same afternoon. Candy Montgomery was found not guilty. Whoa! Candy and her husband, Pat, moved to Atlanta with their children after the trial. Alan remarried, but later divorced, leaving Betty's parents to raise Bethany and Alyssa. Candy's defense attorney would take his own life in 1998. And then two Dallas journalists, John Bloom and Jim Atkinson, wrote a book about the murder called Evidence of Love, upon which a movie was made called Killing in a Small Town. What the fuck? Um, quick questions and theories. I know that was a lot, but it was supposed to be fun, whatever. Um, I skipped the part when she went to the bathroom, uh, Candy, because remember the guys walked into the bathroom, they saw dried blood, all that shit. Yeah, she so actually she cleaned, cleaned up. up at the house and at her own home. Um, there's a whole part in the story where she's like pretends to be kind of blacking out, but she's like, no one can know about this. And so she's obviously very aware. So there's a moment in the series of the phone calls between Alan and Candy where it goes like, I saw her this morning when I went to pick up Alyssa's swimsuit. Did she seem all right? Yeah, she seemed fine. Did she? Uh, she did act like she was in a hurry for me to leave, though. So it was like she's already lying. Mm-hmm. You know, she she is already trying to deceive, have f- some form of deception. Um, so if it was self defense, I feel like you would call the police. And well, I mean, she had you wounds. Didn't, you didn't see the first season of The Sinner, right? No. This is exactly what it is. Oh, really? Yeah. It's it's based off of this? No, no. Oh, but okay, essentially, okay. there is a moment in uh, the main character's life that's super traumatic, and a song is playing. And mm. years later, she hears the same song, and she stabs a guy to death on the beach oh. out of nowhere. Oh, shit. And this is the same thing. Yeah. It's a memory in her brain that allegedly sh- triggered, exactly, a moment of, I guess, a... Uh, authoritative female figure that was causing an angry moment in her and she fucking snapped. But she was already going to try to kill her with an axe if that story's true. But at the same time, not really because Betty was coming at her. Well, no, no, no. That's what I meant. Betty oh, was oh. so... Uh, so oh, okay. If the story's true, right. it was exactly. So basically go watch the first season of The Center. But what the hell? Do you have questions and theories? Because I'm... I don't know who to believe. Yeah, I don't... I, I don't see how... Sorry, that was so long. We're already at like an hour. I don't see how a jury didn't convict her. That's my only... But it was in the fucking 80s, so everyone's like, oh, hypnosis, that's cool. It's like the medicine of the future. Mm. That's true. Nowadays, we'd be like, hypnosis, really? Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah. uh, tell us your story again. Right. Yeah, that was um, the crazy murder of Betty Gore. I don't know who to say fuck you to. Yeah. I think she got away with murder yeah. she should have gotten some jail time i think both women were fucking psychotic yeah and alan was just like a dumb fuck stuck in between yeah all right so to follow up that mm. awesome kind of fun one i have something that's really gonna bring us down so yay it's your turn not mine this is the death of Devonte williams sounds familiar it might be you might uh well, I'll, yeah. I'll tell you why it might be familiar. Shut up. So, Devante Marcel Williams was born June 13th, 1995. Um, he was born four months premature, which unfortunately left him developmentally disabled. 
His mother, Marcella Williams, was only 15 when she had him. By 1999, Devante and his younger sister, Destiny, had been taken from Marcella and her much older, I think a little over 10 years older, girlfriend, Lisa Coleman's home in Arlington, located in Tarrant County. Um, I didn't read Arlington until literally the last article. I'd already Mm -hmm. finished my story and I was like, fucking Arlington, thank you. I couldn't figure out the exact city, so I'm going to say Tarrant County a lot because that's all I had for a while. Okay. Um, so do we know who the father is? Not we in the do la- not. Not, not in his life. Okay. No. So they, De- they, Devante and Destiny, remained in foster care um, for 11 months. Um, they were removed from their home after CPS found evidence of neglect. Devante had marks on his body consistent with having been hit by some type of, type of excuse me, courting. And Lisa and Marcella denied hitting him, but Marcella admitted that they had tied him up with an extension cord. 11 months old? Uh, no, they, that's, they were in foster care for 11 months. This is 1999, oh, okay. sorry, so he sorry, sorry. is four years old. Ugh, still. A four-year-old de- developmentally disabled child. Oh, my God. So the two young children were, like I said, after 11 months, eventually returned to Marcella on the promise that she would stay away from Lisa. Lisa was the aggressor in these abuses. Okay. And lo and behold, she did not stay away from Lisa. Um, CPS would visit the home at least six more times until 2004. Um, it can, is. Can I ask really quick why they were even involved in the first place? Was it because she was just a young mother or? There was a report of child neglect. Okay. And they were following up on that okay. and they found abuse present. Okay. I wasn't sure. Um, so, was... yeah, they were following up on a complaint. Okay. So, in July 26 of 2004, paramedics are called to the again shared home of Marcella and Lisa by Marcella. Half the article said by Marcella, half of them said by Lisa. I think it's by Marcella, the mother. Mm-hmm. She told the operator that Devante was having breathing difficulty. Paramedic Troy Brooks arrived on the scene minutes later and said Devante was obviously dead. They thought he had passed away a few hours earlier, actually. The nine-year-old weighed only 35 pounds, which is less than half of what a child that age should weigh. Um, The paramedics actually initially thought he was much, much, much younger, like four or five when they Mm -hmm. arrived on scene. He was wearing dirty bandages and a dirty diaper. Only these things. Um, Wait, at nine years old? At nine years old. Paramedic Brooks said he looked emaciated and underweight. And the scene was shocking. Crime scene investigator Regina, Regina, <laughs> Regina Taylor would uh, later testify that Devante had, quote, numerous injuries throughout his entire body. Um, he suffered from a disfigured ear due to um, abuses, swollen hands, a slit in his lip, uh, quote, ligature marks around his wrists and ankles. A pediatrician later found 250 wounds on his corpse. Um, a doctor said that, and I, I think I wrote down the doctor's name at some point in here. Um, a doctor said that he had injuries on his arms, hands, wrists, and ankles that were all consistent with having been bound repeatedly. He also suffered from blunt force trauma injuries to the head. Um, and that is 
what originally, uh, there we go, Dr. I knew this was going to be an issue, Konzelman. Forensic Files. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, Dr. Konzelman originally thought that those blunt force traumas were the cause of his death, mm-hmm. but the cause of death was actually found to be malnutrition and pneumonia. So a much slower death. Little Destiny, his younger sister, testified that Lisa would tie up her brother with an extension cord. Um, Lisa Coleman rejected the use of the cord, but did admit to tying him up on several occasions. So, so then why deny one why but deny? admit the other? Like, that doesn't exactly. make sense. Um, You're smart. She also admitted to repeatedly throughout his life uh, whipping him with a belt um, and hitting and pushing him. The slit on his lip was actually a result of him, sh- her hitting him in the face and pushing him down into a table. So remember, he's nine, he's 35 pounds, and he's developmentally disabled. So there was also a golf club found in the home with his blood on it. Lisa denied using this, but his fucking blood's on it, and you guys tied him up, so I don't think he just... Hit himself with it. Exactly. Um, And there was also a pantry... I read somewhere it was a basement pantry, but that, I only read that in one article. But nevertheless, it was a pantry with dried urine to be found on the floor. Um, Lisa and Marcella denied ever locking him in the pantry, but evidence says otherwise. Um, there was evidence found in him um, of some attempts to feed him, but it was too little too late. It's things like Pedialyte and um, chicken noodle soup. Oh, liquid. Right. Nice. When his body was found by paramedics, he had vomit around his mouth and nose that were consistent with Pedialyte. So. Jesus. Well, and that's always a tricky thing when someone is malnourished that you can't just feed them a fucking steak and baked potatoes because it's just going to, you know, come right back up. Yeah. So even Pedialyte wasn't sticking with him is my point. Yep. Fuck. On September 22nd, 2004, a Tarrant County grand jury indicted Lisa Coleman on his death. Um, they indicted his mother, Marcella, as well, both on capital murder charges. Um, Lisa got the capital murder charge. I believe they both did because of locking in the pantry and mm-hmm. he wasn't allowed to leave the home ever. Um, so remember, back in 2004, to have a capital murder charge, you had to commit the murder also with in course felony. with another. Exactly. Yeah. So. Um, they charged her, both of them, on murder in the course of committing kidnapping due to the pantry locking. Huh. Interesting. So in 2006, Marcella pled guilty to the charge in exchange for a life sentence. So she avoided the death penalty. Yes. Ooh, girl, but she's not having a good time in prison right now. Oh, fucking child murderer. Yeah, no, you're not. Uh huh. Mm mm. Oh man. So late June of 2006, Lisa Ann Coleman, 30 years old, was found. 30. Mm hmm. So she was 28 when this happened. Mm hmm. Uh. Okay. Sorry. Mm hmm. Um, was found guilty of capital murder and sentenced to death. So Lisa, oh, and uh, she was sentenced to death after a mere three-hour deliberation. So good job on that, Jerry. Um, Lisa exhausted all appeals, including one to the kidnapping charge. But in September of 2014, she was killed by lethal injection. Fred Cummings, uh, Lisa's original defense lawyer, said that she claims to have not intended to starve Devante. Yeah, right. Um, and her appellate attorney, John Stickles, had contested the kidnapping charge. Um, 
he basically stickles? what stickles I know. <laughs> yeah like sniveling stickles um he basically said that lisa did not deny harming abusing and ultimately killing mm-hmm. Devonte. um but the intent behind it yeah the kidnapping he was like that's kind of bullshit but the yeah the appellate court was like yeah yeah, yeah fuck you uh, death yeah. penalty if this is the only way we're gonna get her we're just gonna just exactly avoid the actual technical terminology of what kidnapping is and all yeah. that it reminded and, me of the whole remember when i brought that up that one time of like the guy getting off or, or the woman hanging her kid in the closet oh, being God. like i didn't think that was gonna actually kill him i was right. just punishing him mm-hmm. you know and the whole intent versus i didn't know that this was gonna happen yeah that's a fine line and it's mostly bullshit usually True. Yeah. Especially in this case. <laughs> um, and I wanted to note that in 2011, the law, Texas law, was changed. Um, any killing of a child under 10 was automatically a capital murder charge. So you didn't, okay. need, it, you didn't need to do it at that point in consortment with another. Sense. Exactly. Consortment. Is that- I've never heard that, but it sounds good to me. It's fine. Adding it's it to the dictionary. <laughs> Calling up Webster right now. So I know we enjoy this. Um, it's not as interesting, though. Lisa Ann Coleman's last meal. By that time, Texas stopped granting yeah. uh, felony criminals a last meal privilege. Mm-hmm. So she ate what all the other fucking inmates ate, which was fried pork chop, macaroni and cheese, carrots, green beans, navy beans, bread, and pineapple orange cake. Which, when you think about it, that all sounds really good. And then you throw in the word prison, and you're like, that's probably all disgusting slop. Yeah, I definitely. Mean, yeah pretty gross pineapple orange cake i know i don't even know what that is i wanted to look it up maybe so no thanks um so marcella Devante's mother Mother. yeah (laughs) age 37 today 30 fucking seven is being held in the murray unit in gatesville texas so in 2004 Devante's case became part of a review of the 1103 child abuse cases in texas um this was ordered by then governor rick perry um, and it was found that CPS caseworkers had failed at least 70% of the time when it came to a quick response to complaints filed about abuse of a child. So they were fucking killing it at that point. Um, oh, my God. Today, Devante would be 23 years old. And I wanted to read a statement made by the Williams family, Marcella's family. Um, We would like the public and the Coleman family to know that our prayers go out to them. From the beginning of this situation, we have always prayed and left it in God's hands. We have always felt that whatever God allowed to happen to Lisa and Marcella concerning Devante's death, that we would have been pleased with it. However, even though Marcella is our niece, we did not understand how they could give Lisa the death penalty and not Marcella, being that she was the mother of Devante. We feel as though she should have gotten the death penalty as well because they both tormented and abused him. But we left this situation in the hands of the justice system and God. We, the Williams family, believe in what's right, and we don't just blame Lisa for Devante's death. We also blame Marcella and CPS for the death. CPS was called 16 times concerning Devante's abuse, but they failed to do anything about it. Their excuse was that the family got lost in the system. I pray that Lisa made her peace with God, and I hope that Marcella has done the same. As for the Williams family, we are moving forward in peace because we know that Devante is in a much better place. This is not a win-win situation because the Coleman family has lost Lisa, and we have lost Devante and his mother. So they were basically, they, they called for... I, I like it. Yeah, they yeah. publicly called for Marcella to get the death penalty. 
But um, also, like, did they not understand the whole plea thing, you know? I mean, I think they were just outraged that yeah. it it was allowed to happen. It wasn't, um, yeah. So, short questions and theories. Um, so, apparently, like the Williams family statement alluded to, in 2002, CPS, quote, lost track of Devante's family. How does this happen? How did they not know Lisa's in the picture? Um, and I wrote, where was the rest of the family? Well, the answer to that is Lisa and Marcella were class act con artists. Mm-hmm. Um, so they told family that he was staying elsewhere with other family, possibly the father's family. I'm not sure. Um, he attended school. He attended first grade for almost two months, but he never returned. At the school, nine years old. Yeah. The school was told that he was transferred. They were crafty in hiding Devante and the, the abuse. Um, so Marcella knowingly kept her children in possession of this sadistic creature. Um, uh-huh. And she hid it. They did their best to hide Devante from the world. That's why he would be tied up in the pantry. So he wouldn't be seen or heard. Um, Marcella, I think, even though we all know my feelings about the death penalty after our our series um i think that if lisa was given the death penalty i agree with the williams family marcella should have gotten the death penalty yeah and what was why did she get i know that she it was a plea deal thing but what was the basis of it she just pled guilty oh so instead good. of dragging the court oh it wasn't all a the, plea deal necessarily she just pled guilty and right they just gave her just like hey uh if you want to save the court some fucking money oh, that's mm. the backwards ass. which it she did was... save a lot of money all in all but yeah um a petition an online petition got a thousand signatures to stop Lisa's execution. Why? Saying that she had been a changed person and that she, her intention was not ever to murder Devante or starve him. Um, and since Marcella didn't get the death penalty, why should she? So the but petition they're not was in her brain in that day in 2004, you know, or those weeks and months and years. Like, they don't yeah. know anything. Like, she's a fucking monster. You look right. at a developmentally disabled <sighs> child. That you damn near raised. I mean, she had been in his life at least from the point that he was three years old mm-hmm. until he was nine. So they made the choice every day. He had wounds consistent with cigarette butt burns. He had, like he endured Sylvia Likens like abuse yeah. in his short little life. He knew no joy. He knew no happiness. There are a few pictures of him. And honestly, I can assume that they're from their stint in the foster care system. Um, so. In 2016, $150 million was approved by Governor um, Abbott to pull CPS out of, quote, crisis mode. So that's two years ago. More money was allocated to CPS to get them more staff, to give them more okay. resources to check on children. So Ooh, $150,000. Million, I mean, million. Oh, $100,000. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, um, okay, that's like three people. But also, Devante was murdered in 2004. Right. So it late. took 12 years that's how to long get to that point. Policy change takes. I yeah. Guess. I mean, thank God it did, but. Yeah. Oh, whoa. So, 80, I couldn't, as usual in cases like this, I couldn't find much about Devante. They shielded him from the world because they wanted yeah. to hide their sadistic abuse. Um, 80 people attended, attended Sweet Devante's funeral, um, and his family is grateful that his suffering has ended. So, 
that's the tragic story of Devonte williams do you have anything to say before i, I mean, say the final fuck yous i guess i kind of wonder just the whole i mean as we all probably are how cbs could actually let this slip through the cracks how I mean, could they fuck up this badly they were called so many yeah, times there's two children there in this situation reports of first of all you got a 15 year old girl that's mothering a developmentally challenged child it's already on the radar right mm-hmm. you do your checkups you do your check-ins you have the calls in between you know that it's progressively getting worse and there's there should be some sort of flag system on the file right. you know why was this ignored how how yeah and you don't want to blame them because you don't want to think that they don't care but you wonder how overworked and and swamped are they to where <sighs> this big of a case can go just to the wayside yeah i mean you, the the first instance that they go check on these children and he's found to have he, he's been bound yeah by an extension cord and it's and not he's like developmentally he's a, disabled yeah i was gonna say it's not like he's like a shithead nine-year-old that's like my mom yeah. did this and fuck her it's like he can't talk to you like, no you know what i mean he can't yeah. form a correct sentence he's completely malnourished and was about to pass out and that's why when people talk <laughs> not to bring this into like a, a, an abortion thing but when people know, talk about gonna... abortion they're like well don't have an abortion just give it up to the system the system doesn't work this is yeah. fucking broken this child was put was, in foster care and just dropped back at his own mom's yeah, house no just promised to stay away from lisa it's right. like that doesn't work was, I, I got the feeling from most of the articles i read and i'm about to double check on the age because when i said lisa was 28 doing the math that would put marcella at 25 but their birth dates are weird i don't know Math she definitely hard. seemed older and a little more controlling yeah regardless. she was probably in not to say that marcella was just like a beaten and battered i don't we she don't know parti- her story she participated yeah. though it, you participated and destiny wasn't suffering the same abuse so right. this child was it coerced from her you know and and put on marcella to actually do that stuff with her you know i think you 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 want to hope that hope and believe that a mother just like riley and sawyer right you, you know? really want to but i mean fuck man i don't know that it, was, it, it lasted for so long i don't ew what kind of people i wonder if there were drugs involved mm-hmm. I, you know how do you especially with his premature birth but when you come across a home and you do a check-in and you keep seeing the same shit and he's in a diaper if he's in a diaper at nine years old I'm sorry. I know that there are hindrances with potty training and dealing mm-hmm. with all of that. Like my sister-in-law's uh, sister is severely mentally handicapped and there's things that they had to do when she yeah. was growing up. But you take care of it in a legal and positive manner. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem correct. No, my <laughs> my what I kind of got from the articles, like I don't know the extent of his developmental dis- disabilities. Yeah. And I don't think anyone ever will because... Again, he, he didn't grow up long enough to fucking figure that out. Yeah, like, and he for wasn't doctors too. He wasn't in school. Doctors, mm-hmm. he never went to a doctor. Never once. They kept him away from doctors and hospitals. They kept him away from work. How does, how do you leave a hospital with the child? Right, and then just it never reappears fucking, in the system. We need again? to go all but way back to the OBGYN and do like a fucking malpractice lawsuit on this <laughs> motherfucker. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, just one slip of the scalpel, and she could have been <sighs> sterilized for life, which is terrible to say, but. This woman's a monster. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. So this, it's really I'm fucking kind of sad. Like at a loss for words with this one. Mm-hmm. This little boy was just an inconvenience mm-hmm. for them. And so they beat him until he was quiet and locked him in a closet. And oh, yeah. And I got the feeling that he was in a diaper because they left him in there for so mm-hmm. long. So just yeah. to allow him to soil himself. I'm sure at nine years old, 
he would have been potty trained. Of I course. don't know. I don't. We don't know the extent of the development disability, but even I, but it could have it could have not even just been a mental thing. It could have been like his lungs were underdeveloped, his you know bones, right. his tissues. It right. doesn't always have to be, uh, you know, an actual retardation and a, a right. Down syndrome type vibe. So who knows what it could have? They didn't figure it out. You nope. know what I mean? They weren't like they were at the pediatrician every day. And he looks like the sweetest boy. Of it makes me so sad. I mean. I hate that he had to deal with that, but I'm glad that he's in a better place. Yeah. So that'll wrap that up. Yeah. Fuck you, Lisa Coleman, and fuck you, Marcella Williams. Woof. Yeah. I hope Marcella never feels an ounce of a happiness in her entire life, and I hope she's beaten within an inch of her life every day. I'm sure she probably is. It'd be nice. That's what she deserves. Every time you say Marcella, I just want to correct you and say Marcella, because I'm used to watching the show. Marcella. <laughs> No, it's M-A-R-C-E-L-L-A. Yeah, I know. That's how she says it, Don't be too. combative. Combative. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, guys, that's going to wrap up this uh, cheery episode 41. We need to figure a better. We need to not do that again. I don't know. It's, no. This one especially is a... If, that was a major We bummer. should maybe say fuck it to the order, and if one of us is doing an especially heinous one, let's not end on that yeah, one. Yeah, because we did that both this episode and last episode yeah and it's yeah. sorry guys go about the rest of your day now and go hang out with your family and yeah paint eat, a smile on your face paint a turkey on a on your hand yeah or how do you i never got to do that <laughs> i don't know what else to say episode 41 thanks for listening yeah you'll find pictures on social media go to keepyourcoal.com for all your christmas present and personal pleasure needs death by um, stone 15 uh Rate, review, subscribe. Do people still do that? We, we're, we're up to 67 oh, reviews, everybody. Wow, wow. It's only been almost... Uh, no, it's been a year. It's been over a year. It's almost 50 episodes, Thank whatever. So Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we're killing it. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, so this is our Thanksgiving episode, and I'm Who sure we'll have we'll a <laughs> Christmas thing, you know? Yeah. We'll be around. We'll be here. Yeah. Whatever. Um, We'll be back at some point mm-hmm. with more texas true crime and, and if, if anyone's, anyone's listening, listening happy, happy halloween, halloween.